Welcome to the unofficial Clutch Podcast. I am your host, Matt, manager of the San Diego Armada. And this week, we have a very, very special guest with us. He is the one. He is the only reigning World Series champion, manager of the Arizona Shade, James. Yes, it is I, the newly crowned King of Clutch, and I have decided to grace this podcast with my presence. That's very kind of you. We we appreciate hearing from the best in the world. It is going very well. Uh, we had a homecoming parade today for all the players who won on the road, an exhibition last night in honor of the end of the World Series. <laughs> Living that clutch life. So your team finished 9-7, and seven, just barely making the playoffs. Get who I just barely knocked out of the playoffs. Yeah, I can't remember. Um, um, I would look it up, Armada, but that's going to cause some depression. So you almost didn't make the playoffs. All I had to do was win a single game out of the last three games I played. And I'm pretty sure if I had done that, not only would I have been in the playoffs, I don't think you would have made the playoffs either. It would have been close. There would have been like a nine-way tiebreaker situation. It would have gotten weird, yeah. So I thank you for your sacrifice. Oh, gosh, yeah. One of these days I'll get in the playoffs and get knocked out in the first round. It was really close, and um, I don't want to say the overall season performance was disappointing, but I expected it to go better. And towards the end, I finally started to get some momentum. And I had already written off my chances of making the playoffs, and then it came to be that there were a couple situations where I still could, and things just kept falling into place, and I was very lucky that they did. Yeah, I think so I finished... had less to do with me making the playoffs towards the end than a lot of other teams did. So you finished 9-7. and seven. You ended up with a third seed in the West. In your first round, you played the Dingoes, beat them two games to one. Anything notable happened in that series? So that series started with uh, starting pitcher two, three, and four. So we didn't get our aces in that series, which I think helped me. The first game of the wildcard series was actually a rematch from the regular season, which I won two to one. And both of our starters gave up one run each. So we kind of expected it to be low scoring. And it ended up going the other way. He won three to two. And it was my only postseason loss somehow. Rich Hill, whose name will definitely come up later, he got chased early, and then the bullpen blew a lead, and it was kind of similar to a lot of my regular season losses, where if my starter didn't go deep, then I didn't stand much of a chance with the bullpen that I had. They were really good at holding a lead, but they were not very good at gaining one. Shout out to Dingoes, though, because in game two of that series, he had Dexter Fowler hit a grand slam off of Jose Ramirez to tie the game. And right there, I thought the series might be over because he was already up a game and then in the top of the ninth, I scored a single run to take the lead, and Archie Bradley got out of a jam that was potentially season-ending for me. Which is not a pitcher you want on the mound when you're facing a season-ending scenario, as I can right. attest to. Right. Um, so you and then strong showing from Quintana, and that round was over. But that one really could have gone either way. So you made it out of round one, and then you go to round two, and then you sweep Strix. Took Strix in two games, but again, this one was really, really close. Both games were, I think, one or two runs difference. And this one was our first 
pitcher one, pitcher two, pitcher three series. So I had Alex Wood and Rich Hill. In the regular season, Alex Wood went 0-3 with a 4-0-0 ERA, and Rich Hill went 0-1 with a 3-2-4 ERA. So I was getting kind of nervous once we got to the series where they were leading off the first two games in a series where two losses could eliminate me because they did not show up during the regular season. I played Strix, and the first game was another rematch from the regular season, which he won 7-5 and ended up beating him by a run. And then in the second game, Rich Hill came back out, and he shut it down this time. He didn't get chased early. He went deep, didn't give up any runs. And in the first game, which was my first home game of the series, Strix actually hit into, I believe, three Arizona field ground balls. And what that is is at Arizona field, the lowest single on a batter's chart becomes a ground ball. And it happened, I believe, once all of the regular season in many games. It was statistically an anomaly that nobody was hitting into these. And then he did it three times in one game. And that's just, that's very bad luck. That's brutal. Yeah. So you make it through the first two rounds. And then you come up against probably the toughest matchup uh, for you. And that was against Luchador's. They are, have been sitting here after two rounds of bye. They had the best record uh, in the regular season. And yet you come in and you also sweep them two games to none. That one was very surprising. I was not expecting a sweep there. So earlier in the season, I played Luchadors and I beat him up a bit. I think I scored eight runs to his four. And I was hoping for a bit of the same luck going into the playoffs. But... I was not expecting it to go the way that it did. In the first game, it was a lot closer, but we scored a lot of runs. I think there were five home runs combined, and I ended up winning by one run because of Mr. Clutch Matt Weeders hitting a mistake home run off of Wandy Peralta. So shout out to anybody who punted catchers with Matt Weiders. Punting catchers. Come on, punting guys. Catchers. Who would punt a catcher? Seriously. Jeez. Somebody like Matt Weeders in the playoffs. His name may come up again. <laughs> In the second game, it was just an implosion for CC Sabathia. He uh, gave up six walks and ten runs in the third inning and got chased after three innings. My team nearly batted around twice in the third inning. Reese Hoskins had a three-run home run and a grand slam in the same inning. There was only one mistake there, and three walks or hits on his chart. So really, it was just bad luck with the rolls. It wasn't anything crazy. It was just... He did not make the proper sacrifice to the dice gods before that game. Again, Rich Hill came out, and he shut it down. He went deep. He didn't give up any runs. And that was the second time he'd done that, even after not showing up in the regular season. And then you faced the ginger snaps in the World Series. Right. Made it to the World Series, and I was a bit scared going into it because going into the World Series, I ran a series of polls and gathered a bunch of stats and numbers about different players throughout the seasons to do kind of some award voting. And Ginger Snap's name came up a lot. A lot of his players were very, 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 very powerful throughout the regular season. So it was a bit intimidating to go up against that, especially because his record was incredible. And, you know, he, I think, I don't remember if it was a sweep or not, but I remember it was a pretty powerful win for his one Eastern Conference series to make it to the World Series. Going into that, Again, with the pitcher one, pitcher two, pitcher three, was a bit nerve-wracking. The first game, it was just a pretty classic clutch game. There was a lot of offense, a lot of good defense. Jose Ramirez tried to blow the game, but he couldn't 
can do that right. So uh, ended up winning the first game with Alex Wood against Robbie Ray. And then in the second game, Rich Hill came out and he shut it down again for a third time in the postseason. He went deep, a lot deeper than his five innings pitch should normally allow. But he went deep again. He gave up no runs. And uh, I think Reese Hoskins hit a two-run home run off of Archer on a mistake pitch, which ended up playing a major part in the three to nothing win. And then we got to game three, deciding game. And in the game three, we, uh, you know, we had it set up. We we're going to live stream it and we were going to make a big deal out of, it, out of it because it was the first clinching game. And uh, it was probably the first time going into a clutch game that I had like real, actual real life nerves. Like this fake baseball game that we're playing is actually real and means something. And my ego is going to be very bruised if I lose, but lots on the line. A lot. And then do you end up winning in three games? Right. So the third game, Kyle Hendricks went out and I think that he gave up a home run in the second or the first. He uh, gave up some runs early, but then he kind of shut it down and ended up playing throwing gas on Kyle Hendricks. Throwing gas lets you roll the pitch with the power die until someone reaches. And I also had an inertia in my hand. And inertia lets you choose a momentum card that's in play, like throwing gas, and keep it in play until the player is substituted. So what that means is that if you play inertia on throwing gas, you're rolling your pitch with the power die for as long as your pitcher's in the game. That's really powerful. And as soon as I played it, Brandon Belt rolled a 20, which I believe would have been a single on Kyle Hendricks' chart. So I had to roll with a diving up the middle, try and turn the single into uh, a ground ball just so I could play the inertia on the throwing gas and keep that alive, which I did. And he ended up tearing through the rest of the game. Uh, 11 strikeouts. He gave up the two runs early, but nothing after that. Inertia is a really interesting strat card, and there's been quite a bit of discussion about it in the uh, Slack recently. Um, for me, it was a, a strat card that I kind of dismissed pretty quickly, but I think, especially recently, people have realized how powerful it is. My nickname for Game 3 of the World Series was the one where everyone started paying attention to how good Inertia is. <laughs> because with everyone watching and, and seeing that combo come into play. I've used it a couple of times during the regular season, along with a couple others, that really can turn the tide of a game. That card is so versatile. There's a lot of momentum cards that it, it combos with. I mean, especially how hard it is to play a strat card and that, to have something where that strat card stays on there, it just makes those spots so much more valuable because instead of only being able to use it once, it, it can extend that effect. Because I've done this recently where I've got things locked in 2.0 uh, and I've been able to play it on my batter and then their very next at bat, they get out. And so they, I just it immediately discards. So to inertia that would be great because then for the rest of the game he gets plus two to his on base which is huge it's really powerful black cat you cannot shake the curse if you play it on crowd on its feet which was one of my other favorites you just don't throw mistake pitches you can discard a card to re-roll a mistake pitch if you play inertia on a crowd on its feet which is a game winner wanted to try 
by playing high heat, but I couldn't. I packed it for a while, but I couldn't get a one, two, three, three strikeout inning. But if you were able to play inertia on that, any walk you issue would just become a K, I believe, for the rest of the game. Locked in would give you two on base all game. Look at silly will um, t- uh, reduce their swing by two for the rest of the game. Uh, we talked about throwing gas. One of my favorites was Road Rally, which is if you're losing, you can play Road Rally, and it negates the stadium effect. So if you're playing in Detroit and his batters are getting a lot of clutch benefits, you're losing, you play Road Rally. Normally when you take the lead, the card is discarded, but if you play Inertia on it, the stadium effect is just negated for the rest of the game. It no longer gives anyone any advantage. Even some of the later game things like um, Enter Night, where if you have a closer with high clutch you can play inertia on enter night and he gets the clutch for all of his pitches in the ninth rather than just uh, the first one and inertia is uncommon i believe so you can pack two of them so your odds of getting it are a lot higher than some of the cards that you only pack one of yeah i definitely think that kind of changed everybody's strat deck strategy uh, because there's a lot of good car a lot of good cards that are momentum cards um, shifting back to your World Series winning team, uh, as you said earlier, you had Arizona Field, which makes the lowest single on the batter's chart a ground ball. Did that have any effect on the uh, players you chose? It did, to a degree. Uh, I wanted to plan around a lot of ground balls taking place, so I wanted to make sure I had good defense and... I wanted to have some pitchers with wide ground ball ranges to kind of play around with that. But like I said, uh, it almost mattered zero because the effect came into play, I believe, once during the regular season. (laughs) So it was an interesting stadium that made almost no difference. Kind of walk me through that. Um, There's nothing that stands out necessarily. Um, But yeah, give uh, give me a rundown of kind of uh, it looks like you went pretty balanced. Um, you got a good pitching staff relative to the pitching staffs I trot out. You have the usual specs of Archie Bradley and Adam Morgan, who can go multiple inning. Closer, you went with Jerry's Familia. And then uh, you went Brandon Belt, which, as your DH, which is something I did as well. Your Brandon Belt got a bunch of walks, just like mine did. D. Gordon, Reese Hoskins who's kind of the leader of your offense uh, with four homers, 16 RBIs, and a 323 average. And then you had good old Billy Hamilton. Yeah, when I set out to start the season, the D-backs were coming off with some early season success in real life. And they asked Zach Greinke what it could be attributed to. And he said, we may not be the best at anything, but we have no weaknesses, and that's what makes a great team. So I kind of took that to heart, and um, I didn't, want to stack anything too heavy, but I wanted to just not really have a weakness. Last season, I got into trouble with mistake pitches and poor defense, and I didn't want to repeat that. So I wanted to have a solid one to five for my rotation, which is something that a lot of people weren't doing. Some of the early rosters came out, and a lot of people were not only punting five, but four and even three in some cases as well. And I knew that if my ace wasn't as ace as some of the other aces out there, I could get guys like Kyle Hendricks, and I knew that if I went with guys like Alex Wood and Rich Hill towards the top, 
that I could get away with guys like Hendricks and Quintana and Cy Young nominee John Gray in my number five spot, who was just filthy in the games he played. And winning those SP4 and SP5 games throughout the season really made up for Alex Wood and Rich Hill combining to go 0 and 4 over seven games. Was John Gray your number four pitcher? Or three? John Gray was my number five. So what? He's your number five? Because against... uh, John Gray would have been my number one. <laughs> yeah, having John Gray as my five helped me roll over some of the teams that, you know, went with Shields and Skaggs, and um, those wins definitely helped the playoff run in the end. I think that's interesting, too, because I have evolved as a clutch player from full aggro last year where I had like Trout, Judge, and every other 600-plus batter known to man in my lineup, and uh, I punted the heck out of starting pitching. And I think sneaky good pitchers are guys like John Gray who have four commands for both sides of the plate. Their X is one to two. They walk at 18, which is normal. Uh, and then six innings pitched and four defense. I think those are like sneaky good starting pitchers to have. Because at 295 normally, salary, that's not very much. No, normally he would be a lot higher, but my first four averaged around 450 apiece because I wanted them to have that five command and five or six innings pitched. But having him as my five was really, really cool. The other thing with my rotation was I made so many mistakes last year, and that's really what knocked me out of the playoffs were mistakes. I wanted to reduce that. So I made sure my first three guys had an X range of one, and then my four and five had an X range of one, two. So they still managed to throw a surprising number of mistakes throughout the season. But once it got to the playoffs, that really kind of came back to the statistical norm and helped me out a lot. Yeah, for me, I avoid starting pitchers that have a 1-3x to three X range. Uh, I think the 1-3x to three X range is killer. But 1-2 to two is it's just weird. The difference from 1-2 to two to 1-3 to three seems really big, even though it's, it's kind of a marginal gain. I mean, for each number in that range, it's an extra 5% chance that you're going to throw a mistake. And the difference between 10% and 15% is pretty big over the course of a season. Looking back on your season now, uh, you got just scraped into the playoffs at uh, nine and seven, and then you essentially sweep all the way through the playoffs and won the World Series. Is there something you can attribute that success to? There were a few things, and it's really kind of good advice for anyone over the course of a season. The first one was lineup adjustments. A lot of times we set our lineup at the beginning of the season and kind of just ignore it because that's what we determined would be the best. In this, in my case, Steve Gordon spent most of the season leading off because he's Steve Gordon and he leads off. And towards the end, I one of the good things about keeping stats throughout the season is we can go back and look at all the things our players have done. And I realized that Addison Russell was way better than I had given him credit for. So I moved him to lead off. And even with or without the plus one against lefties, I let him off every game, I believe. And he got on base really often, and it made a big difference. And then making the call to bench Maldonado for Weeders 
they had the same on base, but Weeders has some clutch and a little bit better chart. And at first I was hesitant to give up the battery defense, but it ended up working out because there just aren't a lot of people who steal against the seven or a nine. So it was a bit of a minimal difference. And if anybody tried it, I could just bring in Maldonado as a defensive replacement. So paying attention to that helped and making adjustments going into the playoffs helped. But then also just being more aggressive. I think I stole one base all season and I had no sacrifice bunts. It was kind of, let's just get guys on and try and move guys over and get them home. Maybe I'll get a big home run. But in the playoffs, I realized just that that one extra run can be the difference. So stealing more, getting guys into scoring position by sacrifice bunting and kind of catering my strategies towards that. And then the strategy adjustment, because I went through a lot of the regular season with a deck that in retrospect was kind of built to help me not lose. But then I went back and kind of analyzed everything that I played, what got played the most, what didn't, what worked, what didn't, and kind of just made an overall shift from like a heavy defense and pitching support to like a heavy offense and pitching support. And then added a lot of cards that are cantrips that kind of replace themselves once you play it to help you get to some of those um, those really key fast workers and quality starts, inertias in my case, and then just a lot of strategies to help you prevent mistakes and keep guys off base and keep guys in the game and score more runs. And um, I shifted a lot of the momentum stuff around based on what was working. And again, that inertia combo probably led to five or six different wins in different ways. It's interesting because I agree with all three of those things. I did something similar too, where I moved my lineup around because uh, I was looking at the stats and how I had my lineup set up originally just wasn't working out as well. And like I had Zach Cozart, I think as my seven or eighth batter. And I realized he was one of my better hitters. So I just moved him up in the lineup just to get him more at bats. Uh, and then same thing with the, the, the being more aggressive started to take more risk and, and advance the guy an extra base. And then same thing with strategy cards. I would go through and then I would kind of adjust on a per game basis, depending on the team I was playing as well. So I agree. I think those are all three um, and I think that's, are good lessons for new, uh, new players. Yeah. I think that's something we learn over the course of a couple seasons that a lot of people could probably benefit from knowing right out of the gate, which is don't be afraid to move your lineup. Don't be afraid to be aggressive and cater your strategy deck to the game that you're playing. We're allowed to make as many moves as we want in the strategy deck. And my team had one rare on it. It was not built to be overpowering, but catering the strategy deck game by game to the team and the stadium I was playing made all the difference in the world. I told you when we came on that I didn't have a hot take this week. I would like to rescind that and dish out a lukewarm take, and it's in regard to catcher defense and stolen bases. And everybody loves catcher's defense and punting catchers to get Maldonado to get kind of full uh, catcher-pitcher defense. But I think it's kind of silly, and not just that people don't steal – it's that it's really hard for people to steal multiple times in a game because I feel like in general most people will only have 
one or two speed A guys in their lineup anyways. So it's not like if you have, you know, a batter pitcher combination of like seven or eight, it's not like an automatic stolen base either. I was looking it up and there's six all-star game uh, set guys that have speed A and like 20 base set guys that are speed A. So, and I've done this on my team. I got a lower defense catcher because I feel like even though my defense is lower, people still aren't going to do it because if, you know, you only have one, maybe two speed A guy, A, they have to get on base, um, and then B, they can't really steal with a speed B guy even on seven because uh, the odds are still in the favor of the defense. So that is my lukewarm take is people should stop caring about catcher defense as much because even if you do have a lower defense, I don't think people are going to steal that much. There's been a lot of discussion on Slack, a lot of back and forth about if the ranges are right, if the batteries are calculated right, if the game lends itself less towards stealing than it possibly should. And I've even made the argument that maybe it should be a little easier for some of these top speed guys to steal. But deep down, I don't really want them to. I am all in favor of the way things are now because I've learned this season that if I keep Maldonado on my bench, I can bring him into the game if I'm playing somebody who's got a bunch of speedy guys and isn't afraid to steal. But until I know that's the case, give me somebody with less defense and more power. Yeah, and I think we're all saying this, but I don't, no one, I think there's only like one or two teams that really stole with any regularity. So I, we just, I, don't, I think it's fine. Like I said, I, I, I think that's kind of an area where you could like get a better catcher with lower defense. Um, and, I, and I don't think people are going to run wild on you. Because uh, like I said, even at speed B, if you're your catcher pitcher defense is seven the odds are still in the favor of the defense you know it's not a clear cut oh yeah i should definitely steal you're always going to need strat cards to make the odds make sense for you to steal i think it was clam chowda this season that had gordon and hamilton and i think uh went 15 for 18 on steals and no one else was even close i think melonheads had a Gordon with 12 stolen bases. He wasn't yeah. afraid to steal. But overall, as a team, it just didn't come up that often. All right, let's uh, move on. Because of your World Series win, uh, you got some prizes. And one of those prizes was to be the first person in the history of the world to help decide who the next limited edition cards are. Uh, so I wanted to hear kind of your thought process of, of what your initial idea was and kind of how you went through to get your short list? Well, there's a combination of just players we really like, players we think that should have cards, and um, players that we think would just be fun to break the game with. We have had some discussions back and forth. We're still trying to hammer out exactly how it'll work, how many cards, what the breakdown is, if there's a theme or how much input we get from other or the rest of the league even but um some of the names that have flown around are uh, they're kind of fun i'll give you i want to give you two of my ideas and i want to hear your thoughts so for me i think someone mentioned this before that one of the areas 
that's lacking in the LE cards is there hasn't been a relief pitcher yet. And I thought that was interesting. And I have two ideas for relief pitchers. They're both San Diego Padres, of course, showing my natural bias. I'm absolutely shocked. <laughs> I know, right? Um, they're from back in the day, in the early 2000s, when the Padres were consistently mediocrely good and would somehow win their division or the wild card and just barely make it in the playoffs and then immediately get swept in the first round. And um, it's the three-headed monster of the bullpen. So for those that don't know, for several years um, back before closers became less important, we had Trevor Hoffman, who we just got a limited edition card for, and then there was um, Scott Linebrink and Aki uh, Otsutka. And it basically, for like two or three years, if the Padres were winning after six innings, there was like a 0% chance of the other team A, getting a hit, or B, scoring a run. Aki, he actually came over from Japan in 2004, and in 2004, he was third place in Rookie of the Year voting, which is insane because he's a relief. He was a 32-year-old reliever at the time, but that season he had a 1.75 ERA, uh, a WHIP of one, and a strikeout per nine of ten. In the next year for Scott Linebrink, in 2005, he had a 1.8 ERA, with again a one WHIP and a eight strikeout per nine uh, rating. So that was my that was my thoughts because I was like, oh, that'd be those would be two guys that are um, had really good years as a as a relief pitcher that uh, I thought would be interesting. It would be a costly one, two, three, but getting LEs for both of them and Trevor Hoffman in your in your bullpen, yeah, would pretty much shut down the game after six innings. Yeah, because uh, in two thousand and four, Aki had a two point nine WAR. And in uh, 2005, Scott Linebrink had a 2.5 war. Although, if you look at 2004, Linebrink had a worse ERA, but in he had a 2.6 war uh, in 2004 as well. So that, uh, that bullpen um, was insane. I remember as a Dimebacks fan, a lot of those games. I was going to say, I was gonna, did you, do you know who I'm talking about? because uh, I saw them win a lot of games. Um, and Trevor Hoffman had a 1.8 war in 2004. So not his best year, but still. The four Diamondbacks were not going to start with them at all. But speaking of the Diamondbacks, uh, I had bounced around a couple ideas just to get a couple um, hometown guys in the LE set. A lot of hoopla has been made about the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Roger Maris promo set, a lot of home run hitters. And I'm sure that before too long, we'll get the Barry Bonds that breaks the game. But in 2001, Luis Gonzalez had 57 home runs. Yes. Nobody really paid attention because I think Bonds and Sosa both eclipsed them that year. They both went over 62. And uh, he had a 325, 429, 688 slash line. And his card would have the the slugger, all star, home run, and arc. he'd have pretty good defense too. Um, I think he was perfect on fielding chances that year. 
you would get the benefit from Arizona Stadium. So that would be a fun card to have just to get some power there. Was that the year they won the World Series? It was, actually. Um, it's come up a few times, the 2001 so, World Series, with so many Yankee fans. On as, as a as a Padre fan, I haven't had many World Series. Um, in fact, there's only been one in my lifetime, and I was seven when that happened. But 2001 holds a funny place in my heart. I, I remember it because my mom is from Arizona, and so she has Saul's family that lives there, and they're all Diamondbacks fans. And I remember I bet my mom, I wanted to bet my mom uh, that Arizona would beat the Yankees in the World Series. And I wanted to bet her 20 bucks, which would have been like a month of allowance. And um, she wouldn't let me because she's like, no, I don't want you to lose a month of your allowance. And then I have to hear you complaining the entire time. But I was persistent. So she finally let me bet $5 that Arizona, I thought Arizona was going to win. She thought the Yankees were going to win. And of course, Arizona won. So that is my one successful sports betting story that I have. And I was that, I was 10, that, that 11 at the time. That was not a smart bet, but I'm glad you made it. Yeah. I don't know what it was. I just had this feeling and uh, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> it worked out. It's been our one thing to cling on to for a long time. On the other side of the ball in 2001, there was a guy, kind of a good pitcher. His name's come up a few times. Uh, Randy Johnson. And that would be a very, very strong card. Um, but I actually wouldn't want to make a 2001 Randy Johnson. Uh, he won the MVP and he did really well, Scion, everything 2001. But 2002, he won 24 games with a 2.32 ERA. And I think he had over 330 strikeouts. Um, and it was his fourth straight Scion season that year. And it was just, it was filthy. And yeah, I, I mean, want you can choose any year from 99 to 2002 and his card would be ridiculous he won the cy young four years in a row he, he had just, over 340 or 330 strikeouts all four years as well that's nuts i don't know what that card would cost but i know that i'd pay it <laughs> speaking of expensive cards i do want to just get a price check on a i think 1968 bob gibson Ooh. Uh, we're joking about what the most expensive card be. And I think that him, he went a 1-1-2 ERA over 300 innings pitched. So we're looking at like probably eight command. He had 28 complete games, which rounds up to nine innings pitched on a card. <laughs> and uh, he'd have the MVP, gold glove, strikeout, wins, and all-star icons. So five icons for eight command over nine innings pitched. And that, a chart that would be almost impossible to get a hit on. That might be a Barry Bonds. That might beat Barry Bonds for salary. That might be the answer. That eventually. might be the yeah, yeah. Barry Bonds that breaks the game. They might both be over a thousand points. So you said you didn't suggest Randy Johnson for the LE. Uh, it would it would depend on how many cards we have made. There's okay. one other player that I'd really really like to get made and really like to see as a card. There's also been some talks about, you know, can we can we get away with strategies or stadiums? And I don't know if we can or not, but it would be nice to see like a uh, like a limited edition Arizona field because that's where we won the World Series, and also make it something a little more hitter friendly because for the majority of our existence, it's been a much more hitter friendly park than its ability would suggest. So even just having like a 
a 2001, you know, Bob Bank One Ballpark LE. Yes, Air the Bob. Oh, yeah, those were the days. <laughs> if we could have the Bob where it was something crazy offensive, like, you know, three walks or three runs knocks down your IP by one instead of four or something, yeah, didn't something they, silly like that. Didn't they have to put in a humidor as well or something to help with the... They did. Balls had so much pop here because it's so dry that before this season, they installed a humidor. And as soon as we traded J.D. Martinez, they decided that we were a defensive team all of a sudden. <laughs> it has helped, like, or hurt, depending on which side of the ball you're on. But it's made a big difference, and it actually, life imitating art makes um, the Arizona Stadium make more sense that singles would become ground balls because the balls have less pop now. So maybe they just had uh, someone on the inside that was giving them a heads up about what was coming. There's one other player that is in discussions, and I won't give it away because it may be the, the eventual winner, but I will say that it's uh, it's somebody who will provide offense and defense and base running and will make using their stadium easier to do and more fun to do. Ooh. So if anyone wants to guess, throw your guesses in the comments and be sure to smash that like button. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Is it, it's not an Arizona player? It is not an Arizona okay. player. Hmm. This is not my homer pick. Okay. All right. Well, let's say that's a good cliffhanger to end that topic on. Let's fast forward a little bit. Um, Autumn League is coming up in a couple months. They just announced stadium assignments. You said earlier you haven't really thought about clutch right now. I got the Montreal Stadium, uh, which is kind of cool and kind of annoying. Montreal is plus five speed on ground ball advancements attempts, and Washington infielders negate that effect. So you basically just have to have one Washington infielder, and the other team can't use that. Then you got Philadelphia Stadium, which is plus one to the swing of the losing batter. How do you feel about your stadium? Well, this year I went with solid pitching rotation and just a couple big bats and a decent bullpen. And I was thinking next season, I'm just going to throw all that out. I'm going to punt everything pitching and just stack the lineup with as many big bats as I can because I'm tired of thinking, like, let's just roll the dice and see if I can hit some bombs. And then I got Philadelphia Park, where the effect is negated if you have Philly pitchers. And Philly has good pitchers. Yeah, I had the kind of same feeling with my stadium um, because I kind of have kind of gone back and forth. But I I mean, you got to go full aggro at least once in your life. There's nothing better than annoying the heck out of your opponent when you, you know, have three power hitters that have a on base of 14 plus. Um, but I kind of like Montreal because it's going to stretch me a little bit. Uh, I think I'm I'm still going to go semi aggro. Um, I'm debating about my biggest debate right now is if I should have Steve Rogers be my number one starter pitcher or not. Um, but then my offense is going to be speed heavy to hopefully take advantage of the uh, the ground ball advancement. I'm facing something similar where I want to just stack my lineup with bats, but 
guys like the all-star game nola card are really good um and then you have relievers like uh naris and neshik and um tommy hunter and they are all going to uh, offset that they're they're all going to negate that stadium effect but they're all going to cost way more money than i planned on spending but that may just be something i have to do because the division i'm in is rough you in montreal and then uh i've got the luchadors in yankee stadium and the dingoes in Dingertown. so i think it was the melon head who referred to it as the division of death and, yeah uh, it's, it's definitely gonna be a lot tougher than it was last between season. the managers in the division and then the stadiums it's gonna it's gonna be really exciting i think whoever makes it out of our division even if they don't do well in the playoffs i did really well because uh, that's gonna be it's gonna be pretty crazy because i know um the dingoes are going wait are the, the dingoes are in our league are right they're in our division yeah they're in our division i know they're going full aggro and i've seen some of their lineups and it's impressive and so the luchadors are going to do the same with the uh the lower home run effect of new york american stadium yeah so it'll be interesting because i think yeah you should probably go pitching and i might need to go a little heavier on pitching as well so it'll be interesting so to I feel see like, i feel like i should go pitching i wasn't going to <laughs> but i may have then again, I may just throw it out and say, you know what? If I'm going to play away in those stadiums, I may as well pack home run hitters. So it's uh, it's probably time to get started on that now that we've only got like a month and a half to go. Yeah, I mean, you need time to go through 30 different lineup options. So Right, and play test all of them and, and fret over them and change it four times the last day and then ultimately submit something the next day after the deadline. I'm already in this feedback loop of should I put Oder in this Odour in this lineup or not? And I've gone back and forth, I think like four or five times now. Um, I feel like at I, this point you're obligated. Yeah. And that was my thought too. I'm like, I kind of just have to roll with it now. Like this is my clutch legacy. This and is your thing. Yeah. I'm either going to go in the clutch hall of fame for this one specific thing or, or the you know, hall of shame yeah or the hall of shame yeah we'll see but yeah, we will see out so well um it is cool to see some of the newer stadiums in this season um i know we got uh Dingertown in our division but then i think it's strix has big red machine there's gonna be a lot of home runs there and then uh the hartford high rollers i believe are the recently relocated Cobras or avocados? Cobras, I believe. They get the new all-star game version of Washington where everyone's clutch comes into play in the eighth inning or later. And uh, we played an exhibition game there last night, and the eighth and ninth inning were, were crazy. Yeah, it, it, uh, it's an interesting arrangement of stadiums. We got Los Angeles, um, which will be interesting with Seattle Melonheads to see see what they do. Yeah, Big Red Machine, Washington, Kansas City, Boston Chowder might go, might take advantage and, and go speed crazy. So it'll be interesting to see. All right, thanks for chatting. Uh, it was fun to hear 
how your World Series ran happened, even though it was largely uh, due to my terribleness that got you in. Uh, but I am looking forward to the Luis Gonzalez card. Fully support it. Uh, I can't wait to see what the other cards are. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And um, I want to give thanks to all of the other players in the league. Uh, it was a great season. And I also want to give thanks to all of the like partners and kids who like stuck through all of these games with us and uh, kind of put up with what we do. Yeah, it's always fun figuring out a time when you can sit down and play with other people around the uh, U.S. Especially, yeah, with that three-hour time difference, it can be a pain sometimes. But um, shout-out to Lauren, my girlfriend, who was uh, very tolerant. Shout-out indeed. All right, see you guys next week.